When I was in college, I was involved with a ministry that, that each Christmas time I had a conference out in Denver. And, and we would go to this conference each year and we'd get in our cars and vans and we would drive across Missouri late at night, in the middle of the night, and go through Kansas in the darkness of Kansas. I, I don't think we missed a whole lot by going through the darkness. It's been my experience. Kansas looks about the same from beginning to end as you drive through. Uh, no offense to anybody from Kansas, but uh, it's not exactly a great deal of variation there. And even as you get into eastern Colorado, it's pretty flat. There's not a whole lot going on until eventually the sun would rise and we would see in the distance the Rocky Mountains. Now that was something to see, a sight to behold. But, but as we saw the Rocky Mountains in the distance, it's really an odd thing because, because the Rockies at, at their widest point are about 300 miles wide east to west. But as we saw them in the distance, they looked almost two-dimensional, flat against the horizon. There was no depth to them because they were far from us. We could only see them looking from the nearest point and the farthest point, looking at the, as if they were in the same place. In the Bible, prophecy often works in a similar way. When we look at prophecy in the Bible, there's sometimes prophecies of things that are going to happen very soon, other times prophecies of things that are far off. And, and quite often they are intermingled one with another, which makes it very difficult, very confusing sometimes as we handle the Bible's prophecy. Today we're going to take a look at Micah 5, and in this passage, which was uh, written in the 8th century B.C., we see a context which has the prophet giving warnings to the people of God about an impending judgment. It is coming soon, and chapter 4 deals with this very directly. This judgment is very soon coming right away into verse 1 of chapter 5. But then when we get to verse 2, the scene shifts. And we look at something that is a future promise that will be fulfilled some 700 plus years later. It is a promise of a coming ruler, a shepherd king, one whose origins are in both royal lineage as well as an eternal being. Listen now as I read from Micah 5, beginning in verse 2. This is God's inspired word. There. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, little to be, there's not a whole lot going on until eventually the sun would rise and we would see in the distance the Rocky Mountains. Now that was something to see, a sight to behold. But, but as we saw the Rocky Mountains in the distance, it's really an odd thing because, because the Rockies at, at their widest point are about 300 miles wide east to west. But as we saw them in the distance, they looked almost two-dimensional flat against the horizon. There was no depth to them because they were far from us. We could only see them looking from the nearest point and the farthest point, looking at the, as if they were in the same place. In the Bible, prophecy often works in a similar way. When we look at prophecy in the Bible, there's sometimes prophecies of things that are going to happen very soon, other times prophecies of things that are far off. And, and quite often they are intermingled one with another, which makes it very difficult, very confusing sometimes as we handle the Bible's prophecy. Today we're going to take a look at Micah 5, and in this passage, which was 
uh, written in the 8th century BC, we see a context which has the prophet giving warnings to the people of God about an impending judgment. It is coming soon. And chapter 4 deals with this very directly. This judgment is very soon coming right away into verse 1 of chapter 5. But then when we get to verse 2, the scene shifts. And we look at something that is a future promise that will be fulfilled some 700 plus years later. It is a promise of a coming ruler, a shepherd king, one whose origins are in both royal lineage as well as an eternal being. Listen now as I read from Micah 5, beginning in verse 2. This is God's inspired word. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace." grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Lord, our God, we pray right now asking that your spirit would move in our midst in such a way that we would not only hear your words, and not only hear the preaching of your word, but that you would yourself speak to our hearts helping us to see that which you would have us see, to know that which you would have us know, and to live our lives as a result in a way which you would have us live our lives to the glory of your holy name. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The other day, Aaron and I were were looking at a blanket that we have. It's a picnic blanket. It's a picnic blanket that we got uh, for our wedding over 15 years ago, and and we were looking at it. It's got some some holes that are starting to get in it. It's really wearing thin. It's becoming kind of ragged, and we were kind of chuckling about it because when we got this blanket, we really didn't expect very much out of it. It it wasn't the kind of gift that really thrilled us when we got married and and got this blanket. We kind of looked at it. It had our name. Uh, you know, printed on it, and it was nice enough, but what were we going to do with this blanket? It really wasn't all that special to us. We had very low expectations, but over the years, over the years, we've used that blanket probably more than any gift we got for our wedding. We've taken it on picnics. We've used it in our house even, where we've set it out and played on it, and even we've shared meals on it. We've we've used it to keep ourselves warm. We've used it in all sorts of scenarios. I even used it once to change a tire in the rain late at night. I lay, had it in my trunk and I laid it out on the ground. This, this has been an extremely useful gift for us. I, I suspect that if you asked us, of all the gifts that we got for our wedding, which one, which one has been the best? 
I don't know if this would be number one, but it would certainly be near the top of the list. We didn't expect much out of it. But sometimes our expectations are incorrect. Sometimes, especially God, likes to cause our expectations to be incorrect. He works against our expectations quite often so that we, to trust in God, should really expect the unexpected. The Bible's full of places where this is case, and and today we see some of them specifically in this passage that we're looking at. We're going to see as we look at these verses today how, how God, out of smallness, bring status and how how in a time when we are scattered he brings security and then finally we're going to see how how out of his power comes our peace if you ask people in america to consider where where would you look to see the most significant events the most impactful the most important events where would you look to find those things occurring I suppose some people would probably say, well, Washington, D.C., certainly. Because in Washington, D.C., that's where we see the legislators who make our laws and and debate in in the halls of Congress. And we see see the the Supreme Court there where where the justice of our laws is is ruled on. And we see that that in Washington, D.C., that is where the president, the head of the executive branch, most, most commonly referred to as the most powerful man in the world, that's where he lives. So, so that must be the place that we would look to for the most impactful events, Washington, D.C. Or perhaps we would say New York City, Wall Street, right? That's where, that's where the most important things happen because that's kind of the financial capital of our country and, and even the world, really, because that's where all of the economic things happen and, and that's where the economic course for our country and even for the world is, is set, New York must be the place where the most important things happen. Perhaps Hollywood. Not so much that the very people in Hollywood are more important, but there is a sense that Hollywood, as as a symbol of the entertainment industry, really does set the course of our culture, doesn't it? Many of our culture's thoughts and beliefs are, are shaped and molded by the entertainment that we consume. And so you can make a case for Hollywood, I suppose. But I would argue that of all the events that have ever happened, the most important, the most impactful, we need to not look to any of these major metropolitan areas. Rather, we need to look to a little town, a little town known as Bethlehem. Note Micah's prophetic promise to this little town here in verse 2. He says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel. What a promise. What a promise for a town that is such a little town. Bethlehem, providentially named thus, it means in Hebrew, house of bread. And that makes so much sense. It's so appropriate that it would be called house of bread because the one who would come from there would one day declare, I am the bread of life, the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
Bethlehem is famous to us now because it is the birthplace, of course, of Jesus. We sing songs about this. We sing, O little town of Bethlehem. We just sing, once in Royal David City, and we call it Royal David City because even before Jesus was born there, David was from there. King David, that is where he was born, that is where he served as a shepherd tending to the flocks over which his father Jesse had entrusted him. He was there long before he was the king, the greatest king of Old Testament times. David was also from Bethlehem. But even so, Bethlehem was not a prominent town. It was a little tiny town. In Joshua 15, we read of all of the areas of Judah that Joshua conquered and, and, and the dispersal of the, uh, the different regions. And there's 92 towns which are mentioned. Bethlehem is not among them. And we see in this passage in Micah today that he needs to designate not just the town. He doesn't just say Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephrathah. It's as if he says Flint, Michigan. He gives the region that it's in, not just, not just the town. He needs to do this because it's a small town. It's insignificant. If I lived in, well, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and so I tell people I'm from St. Louis, I just say I'm from St. Louis. But if I were from St. Louis, Michigan, I would have to designate I'm from St. Louis, Michigan, because it's a tiny town. It's inconsequential. So it was with Bethlehem. Now, why would it be that the Christ would be born in such a tiny town? I think that's a fair question. We would expect, normally, that that he would come from a grand town, a, a big city, a, a powerful metropolis. It would make more sense to our way of thinking that that would be the case. But I think that part of the reason might be because of what that would cause those in that city to think. If he had been born, let's say, in Jerusalem or in Rome or in some other huge city where the people already have a tendency to think that ours is the greatest city on earth. Surely they would have thought, well, of course the Messiah was born here. Of course he was born here. This is the greatest place. Everybody knows that. They would have been filled with pride over that. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? Our natural bent is toward pride. We, we want to find pride in whatever we can. Normally, I, I just last night was watching TV. The Heisman Trophy was awarded. And we know a little bit about the Heisman Trophy here because, of course, just a couple of years back, Mark Ingram won the Heisman Trophy, and he's from Flint. So we have signs up on the outside of town when you're coming in on the interstate from whatever direction you're coming. It says, welcome. You know, this is the home of Heisman Trophy winner, Mark Ingram. And we take great pride in that. As I traveled home to St. Louis over Thanksgiving, we go across the state border from Michigan into Indiana it says, welcome to Indiana, boyhood home of Abraham Lincoln. And then as we drive through Indiana, we get to Illinois, we go across the border, it says, welcome to Illinois, land of Lincoln. You know, it's, it's you know, I, he wasn't born in either of those places, he was born in Kentucky, I suppose. They might have a sign as well. We want to find glory wherever we can in ourselves and what we have and what we've produced 
That's our natural inclination, to find glory in ourselves. But God wants us to find our glory in him. He wants us to look to him for glory, and we know that he knows what's best for us. And what's best for us is to not look within, but to look to God. And so we see here in verse 2, he says, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now he doesn't say one will come forth for you to deliver you from your distress, to give you peace, to give you a savior. That's not ultimately what the purpose is. Now certainly those are all true. It is a savior who will come forth for us. He will give us peace. But ultimately, he comes not for us, but for God, that his purpose might be upheld, that his glory might be made manifest. Just this past week, we had in my household a sad occasion. You may have heard about it. The St. Louis Cardinals, first baseman, Albert Pujols, happened to sign a contract with the Los Angeles Angels. It was a sad time. Now, on the one hand, it's hard to begrudge the man. Ten years, $254 million is is quite a hefty contract, especially when the Cardinals were only offering $210 million. And many people around the world of sports have, have said, you know, couldn't he have lived off of the $210 million? Come on, how greedy can you get? And so forth and so on. And I found that, that there's a special moral indignation among Cardinal fans. We especially are, are just think that he has, just, he has sinned beyond, beyond any kind of understanding. And it's just amazing. How could he do such a terrible thing? I haven't talked to a lot of Angels fans. I'm not sure if they're quite as upset as as we Cardinal fans are about that. Why is it that we think it's such a terrible thing that he's done? Well, we think it's a terrible thing that he's done because he didn't do what we wanted him to do, what was best for us. And that's how we look at the world, isn't it? We see the world from our perspective, what's best for me? We are inherently prideful. We need to steer clear of that because pride stands behind so many other sins. I was reminded this week of the words of C.S. Lewis who talked about how it stood behind greed and vanity. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Wise words. That pride stands behind our greed. It stands behind our vanity. And it is what Adam and Eve succumbed to in the garden, is it not? The serpent said to them, eat the fruit and you will become like God. It really is at the root of any sin we commit. For any time we commit a sin, we are basically saying, I know better than God what it is that's best for me and anytime we sin we're we're essentially coming before the throne of God and scoffing him 
It is a cosmic act of treason whenever we sin. That is the nature of pride. So God wants to keep us from being proud. So he chooses both people and places that are unlikely. He chooses the least likely so that we have nothing to brag about. So we can see no inherent goodness in ourselves. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Paul knows what he's talking about. Paul realizes that he has nothing to offer. We heard earlier before we prayed those words from Paul. He considered himself to be chief of sinners. That's a right attitude to have. To realize it's not the things we bring. Now Paul had even perhaps more baggage than some of us. He was a killer. He tried to stop the spread of the church. However he could, he stood against Christ with all that he had. And yet God chose to use him. Not because he was good. Not because he had inherent value. But for his own purposes. We see this throughout scripture. Another place where Paul talks is in Romans 9. Where he speaks of Rebekah. Who had conceived two children by one man. Twins in her womb. And we read. Though they were not yet born. And had done nothing. Either good nor bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. There was no merit involved here. The older wasn't better than the younger. There were no works that had been done. They were still in the womb. You see, God, even while we are in the womb, can work to save us, to make us his, to set us apart for himself. We can be his people and he can be our God, even in the womb. That's what David says in Psalm 22. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. It's an amazing thing. David, he didn't make a decision to follow God. Rather, God made a decision to choose him. And if there was ever a case of big things coming from little people because God chose them, David would be the perfect example. For when Israel cried out for a king and and had Saul, but then he was not to be the one, and God sent Samuel to Jesse to pick one of his sons to anoint as the king of Israel, Seven sons passed by and seven were rejected. And Samuel asked, are, are there not any other sons? They said, well, there's, there's little David. He's out in the field watching the sheep. But, you know, can't be him. But it was. He was to be king. And we see in the example of David, we all know the story of David and Goliath. 
where David, by himself, by the power of God, the anointed leader of God's people, fought on their behalf and slayed the giant that threatened the people of God. And through that slaying, all the people of God were able to share in the spoils of his victory, even though they had not raised a hand to help him. And so it is with us. For we have an anointed leader who has fought the battle against our greatest enemy, who has won the victory over sin and death and in whose victory we as his people can share in the spoils even though we have not lifted a hand to help. It is his victory, his glory, for Christ set aside his glory and he took on human flesh and took up residence in an animal's feeding trough. that he might establish his kingdom, that he might be the house built for God's name, that he might reign on David's throne forever. God would be his father, and he would be God's son, the shepherd king who gathers the scattered sheep, that they might have security. Verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. It would be easy for us to see an allusion there to the virgin birth of the Christ. And perhaps that's met there, perhaps not. I don't think it's necessary. For, for this language of labor pains is one that is used throughout Scripture uh, of the people of God waiting for deliverance, waiting for deliverance, and longing for the day. But at the same time, it does fit. It does work in this case because the virgin did conceive, the virgin did bear a son. And indeed, he was Emmanuel, God with us, just as the prophet Isaiah had promised. He was the righteous judge. He was the gathering shepherd. We were like sheep without a shepherd. Not because God was asleep on the job. Not because he had closed his eyes and we had wandered off when he wasn't paying attention. No, remember in verse 3, it it says here, he shall give them up until the time. God is aware. He knows. He's not surprised, not caught off guard. He gives us up until that time, it says. The problem is our timing is not the same as God's timing. We sometimes wonder why he takes so long to do the things that we would want him to do. Why he waits so long to fulfill his promise, the most common refrain of the people of God in the words of scripture are how long O Lord how long and it's interesting that God's most common message for his people is not an answer to that question but a promise that they can hold on to while asking that question that promise is I will be with you Maybe you ask that question this morning. Maybe, maybe you're in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties. We all have pain and suffering, and, and maybe you are asking in the midst of those sufferings, how long, O oh Lord? How long? I, I imagine throughout history that question has been asked. I, I, 
in my mind think of the angels even asking that question kind of fancifully here. I think back to Eden and and creation has fallen and and things are no longer perfect but, but God has promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so we know things are going to be right and I imagine the angels waiting with anticipation having heard this promise and them saying Okay, Lord, how long, Lord? How long? And then Eve has a son and another, and and surely they're excited now because this seed has come, right? And then the one son, instead of slaying the serpent, slays his brother. And things look awfully, awfully bad. And we fast forward to Egypt the people of God in captivity crying out to God, how long, O Lord, how long? And the angels with them, how long, O Lord, how long? Until finally they're delivered through the Red Sea, only to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. All the while, how long, O Lord, how long? Eventually brought into the promised land, but not there to save because they would be carried off into exile again. No doubt crying out, and the angels with them, how long, O Lord, how long? Brought back to the promised land, returning, but still there is sin in the world, still there is pain and suffering, still the serpent has not been slain, and they cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? And then you can imagine the joy of the angels on that day, 2,000 years ago when Christ is born, you can understand why their joy cannot be contained and why they cry out glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But even so, it's just a little baby in a manger. And the years go by and he grows up. And he hasn't taken to this fight. He hasn't slain the serpent and One year turns into five years, turns into ten years, turns into thirty. And all he's doing is working in a carpentry shop. How long, O Lord, how long? And then finally, he begins his ministry. Now is the time. Yes. But it takes three years. How long, O Lord, how long? After three years, finally, he goes to Jerusalem where he will no doubt take his rightful place on the throne of David. But instead of ascending to that throne, he is raised up on a cross. A cross where he will die for your sins and for mine. How long, O Lord? How long? The third day he rises from the dead 40 days later he ascends to heaven now all will be right but not yet how long O Lord how long we await his return even now we await for Christ to return to come back to make all things right to wipe away every tear to put an end to death to put an end to suffering And we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? 
And there is no answer for us in Scripture. God has determined we don't need an answer to that question, but here is what we do need. We need his covenantal promise, and we have that. And we need to know that he is faithful, and we have that. And we need to know that he is able. And I promise you, dear friends, he is mighty to save. He is able. God always is able to provide what his sheep need, and he does just that. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and that is what he did. So he gave us grace, not just for the most difficult of situations, to carry us through them on a day-to-day basis, but he gave us grace to save us from our sins and from our deaths so that we might know him and that we might have true and everlasting peace with God with whom we had been enemies. But now we have peace, peace that is predicated on his power. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. It's reminiscent of the words of Isaiah, another prophet, a contemporary of Micah's, He spoke of a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, he said. Mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting and eternal and infinite governance, everlasting, eternal and infinite peace. See how they're wed together. Micah puts a finer point on it than Isaiah does. Because he says not only that he brings our peace, but he shall be our peace. It's not just in his work, but in his person. 